0: Well, good morning. Uh, you guys can take a seat unless you want to stand for the whole time that I'm preaching, which uh, maybe you do, and that's fine. You can stand in the back, though, so that I can't see you distract me a little bit. Uh, if, you, if I haven't got to meet you yet, my name is Daniel, and I have the honor of serving here as the Next Generation Pastor, which basically means that I get to hang out with the babies all the way to the young adults and everything in between, so... That's a fun job, uh, and I really, really enjoy it. My wife, Lauren, and I, who's not here, she was partying with Taylor Swift last night in Colorado, so she's not here. Uh, but uh, we are just incredibly thankful uh, for you, our church family. Uh, when we came here two years ago, uh, we had no idea uh, what would unfold, but uh, it's really been just an honor to sit in the front row and watch God change the lives of our students. And so I just want to say thank you. Uh, on the, every time I get a chance to speak to the whole church, I just say thank you, because there's a lot of churches uh, that miss the part about investing in the next generation, and you guys uh, have invested and invested well, so thank you. Uh, All right, so with that said, uh, let's just go ahead and get going. If you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, uh, we have been in the book of Malachi, not one that uh, a lot of people have camped out a lot in, Uh, but if you've been here with us, you know that this series has been hard-hitting. It's been some truth-spitting. It's been kind of in your face a little bit, Uh, And and, and that doesn't stop today, okay? So uh, actually, would you guys just go ahead and open up your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. We left off in Malachi 2 last week. We're going to continue there today, so go ahead and and open your Bibles there. As you guys do that, I want to just give you a quick recap of where we have been in the first few weeks of this series. So here's the recap on the book of Malachi. It's three words. Take God seriously. That's been the recap. That's it. Take God seriously. You see, Malachi was called to confront God's people with the reality of who God really is. Because when you actually begin to understand who God really is, you can't treat him carelessly. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite pastors, Pastor Tony Evans, sums up the book of Malachi like this. He says, Malachi is a call to all of us that while God is a loving father, he is not to be taken lightly. God's kingdom demands our total allegiance. So as we hop into the book of Malachi, Malachi is all about God's people dealing with their sins or lack of dealing with their sins. And yet even in this, even though they are sinning, uh, God is faithful to his people. So with that being the setup, let's just go ahead and pray really quick and then we'll hop in. Uh, Dear God, thank you just for today. Uh, God, would you, uh, would you speak through me and not let it be the words that I have to say, but uh, what you have for the people to hear this morning. So God, we love you. We thank you. Uh, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, shout out to Pastor Ryan. He did a great job the past couple of weeks of giving me the template and the format to walk through Malachi with. And so if you've been here the last two weeks, don't be confused. We're actually going to use the same three questions to unpack today's scripture. Okay, so this isn't a test if you didn't write those questions down. Shame, uh, but you should write these down today and fill in your notes, okay? Uh, our students, they, they know that I like to like do notes and take notes and give them notes, and so we're gonna take some notes. All right, so here's the three questions we're gonna answer and unpack this morning. Number one, we're gonna talk about what's true about God. What's true about God? Number two, we're gonna talk about what's true about the people then. And the third thing we're gonna talk about is what is true about us. So, three questions. And although it's only three questions, we actually have a lot to unpack. So are you guys ready? We're ready to go? Gideon's ready. I like it. Let's just jump right in. So Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 10, it says this. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. We're going to pause right there. I want you to see that you're going to see two major themes in these six verses. All right, we already see it here in the first two. We have two themes, covenant and unfaithful. So before we really hop in, I think we should set the, the playing field even. Let's talk about covenant first. You see, because covenant is a really important concept to grasp, and if you don't grasp this concept, uh, when we get to the part about being unfaithful, it's not really going to matter. Okay, so let's talk about covenant. Covenant starts at the very beginning, with Adam and with Abraham in Genesis, with Moses and Israel in Exodus, David in 2 Samuel, and as you continue reading through the prophets of the Old Testament, you'll find that they have received covenants, and these covenants were made and fulfilled with God and with the coming of Jesus covenants are literally all over Scripture. They are super important. As a matter of fact, covenants are what brings the 66 individual books together as one story of a God who longs to be in relationship with his people. And often we have just a little bit of a disservice because in our English language, we tend to think as covenant as a contract. We're all familiar with contracts, whether you've signed a mortgage on a house 30-year mortgage, but most of y'all didn't last, you know, five years or like us three months, right? Some of you have have tried this out. You've done a contract to pay for a phone, knowing full well that the new iPhone doesn't come out every two years. It comes out like every nine months, right? You guys knew that. Some of us, like myself, have even hopped on, signed a contract for a job, knowing that it kind of was just a stepping stone. I wasn't really going to stay too long. It's a stepping stone onto the next one. You see, us, we're familiar with contracts. And so often when we see this word covenant in Scripture, We think of it as a contract, but there is a very distinct difference between covenant and between contract. So to illustrate this, I thought I'd tell you a a nice little story. All right, so I graduate college, and of course, I get my first big boy job. I'm an adult. Uh, I signed my first contract as a teacher and a coach. I didn't care how much money I made. I didn't care actually what they had in the contract. I just knew that I had to sign a contract so my mom and dad would be happy that their son got a job. All right. So I go and uh, I show up the first day of of when teachers report early and coaches report early. I show up and they're like, hey, you got to go sign your contract. Cool. I go sign it. No big deal. Didn't read any of it. I saw my name kind of at the top and I signed the last page and I was like, good, I'm out. When did the paychecks come? Right. Signed it. I go through that school year, and I, you know, I do the full school year, and I'm actually offered a second contract uh, to go back my second year, except this time they say, hey, uh, Daniel, we need you to actually stop by the HR office because uh, the contract that you have this year is actually void, and I'm like, what is, what? What's going on? Uh, if you haven't seen my last name, it's a nightmare to spell, and oftentimes uh, my name gets spelled wrong, okay, and sure enough, I didn't look at the contract, and of course, my last name was spelled wrong, and so the people in the HR office were like, hey, We need you to re-sign this. We'll backdate it that way. We're all good. We're all legal. It's cool. I didn't really care that first contract. I just knew I was getting a job and I was going to get paid and I get mom and dad happy. Fast forward a few years later. A few years later, I have uh, been dating and now engaged to now my wonderful wife, Lauren, and it's time for us to go sign a pretty important Covenant right? We go down uh, to the courthouse, and I uh, actually have a, a nice little throwback. There you go. We go down to the courthouse in, uh, in Bell County, and we go to sign a piece of paper. This time, I check it very carefully. I check every letter. I check every little number on the date. I check down to the bottom where it says where we'll be getting married and who will be marrying us, all of that stuff. I comb over this thing really intense. She didn't really know it because she hadn't had my last name, She don't know how often it gets butchered, okay? I I comb over this thing. Well, what was the difference between that, a contract covenant, and the first one? Well, this one meant a lot more to me because I had a relationship with Lauren and that meant something to me. You see, that's the difference between a covenant and a contract. See, contracts, there's no relationship there. We're cool with breaking them, not a big deal. When When I've got what I need out of that contract, I'm out, I bounce, no big deal, right? But when we sign a covenant, covenants aren't meant to be broken. Covenants are sealed with a seal that says, this one not to be broken. You see, there's the difference being there is a relationship. There's an investment in the two parties that are signing this covenant. And that's why you'll often see in Scripture this idea of covenants being related to marriage, Right, we see it in Scripture where we talk about God and His relationship to His people being you know, the bride, the church, and the groom, God. Right? We see this marriage picture so often in Scripture because marriage is one of those covenants that matter to God. And if we're honest this morning, if something matters to God, it should probably matter to us. Right, so like I said, we're going to answer three questions today. The first one being, what does this passage say about God? So we see two big things about God in these first couple of verses. Number one is that he is faithful. He is a faithful God who longs to be in this relationship with his people. In verse 10, we read, Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? There's that word, covenant. You see, Malachi, in one word, covenant, is actually saying a ton about God. Right, what he's saying is that God chose to enter into a relationship with people and that he secures the relationship by a covenant. Right, what he's saying is that God reached down to a people who have done nothing to earn his grace and his favor, and he makes a promise to commit himself to them for their good and his glory. And he actually promises this more than once. You can read it in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Ezekiel, Zechariah. The covenant is this. I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell among you. So God is speaking to a very certain group of people here in Malachi chapter 2. Yes, he is the father of all, but this isn't just some generic call. He's speaking to the people of Israel, his people, who are in this covenant with God. And so you might be sitting here and you're like, well, I'm not a people of Israel. This has nothing to really do with me. Hold that thought. You see, there's something we call the new covenant, and the new covenant was, was brought through and made through Jesus Christ. And you see, these words about a covenant just aren't some Old Testament verse, right? These truths of a covenant still hold true to us in the room who call ourselves followers of Christ. So what's a new covenant? It sounds like a really churchy kind of thing. I, we don't really talk like that. I don't want to leave you hanging because if you don't understand what the new covenant is, how can you live by the covenant rules? All right, So the new covenant, it's found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the promise that God made with mankind that he would bring restoration, that he would forgive our sins for all of those who put their faith and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. Actually, in 1 Corinthians 11.25, we read this. We see Jesus on the night of his betrayal. He takes bread, having given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he did the same thing with the cup. This cup is my blood, my new covenant with you. Each time you drink this cup, remember me. You see, Jesus is the advocate of the new covenant. His death on the cross is the basis of his promise. He defeated death by his resurrection and restores life for those who put their faith in him. The new covenant. So here, as we read through Malachi this morning, notice God's response to this covenant. And honestly, it should have us on guard as people of faith because we are also still walking in covenant with the holy God. Let's pick this back up, Malachi 2, verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of a man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. The second thing we see about God in this passage is that he hates divorce. The second thing we see is that God hates divorce. And really, before we jump into a divorce conversation, I think there's a couple things that we need to state on the top. Number one, marriage is intended to bear witness to the divine covenant between God and his people. From the beginning, in Genesis, God wove the sacred covenant of marriage together. And really, if you don't understand that foundational truth about marriage, then you won't really fully understand everything that marriage is actually calling us to. God made marriage for his glory and his purpose. So when we see a verse like this and we talk about God hating divorce, we really do need to talk about divorce in church because divorce is something that grips and it tears people apart from all walks of life. If we don't talk about divorce in church, where are we going to hear about it? But for those in the room this morning that are coming out of a divorce that are going into a divorce, that have scars from a divorce. Maybe some of you in the room had nothing to do with the divorce, but you've had the traumatic hurt from one. I want you to hear in this also God's grace. You see, God hates divorce, but he doesn't hate you. God hates divorce, but he doesn't hate you. You see, I think God hates divorce because he knows The pain and the trauma that it brings. You see, he hates divorce because it's just a sign of sin in our broken world, corrupting this perfect covenant. You see, he hates divorce because it leaves people hurting and broken. And when his people are hurting and broken, he's hurting too. So, if you're in the room this morning, I don't want you to hear this as a pastor beating you over the head when it comes to divorce. I want you to hear this as words from a loving God who just wants the absolute best for you. There's actually a lot of debate on the translation of verses 15 and 16. But whatever the debate is, what is clear and what people stand united behind is that divorce is not the way that God intended for us to live out this sacred covenant. The fact is, if you disregard the marriage and you're actually disregarding God's design for the covenant. Now, there are certain permissions in Scripture granted toward divorce. Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7. But it's not the true intention that he had for the marriage covenant. And really what's important for you to see this morning out of Scripture is the actual reason behind these people getting divorces. You see, they were seeking out divorces for no fault or irreconcilable difference as we would call it today, right? Also known as a convenience option, right? So the people in Israel, the men of Israel were divorcing their wives out of convenience. The convenience option isn't an option for God's people. In God's eyes, he has disdain for divorce and there are spiritual consequences for it. So then why do we, people of God, often still struggle with divorce. And I think really it's because we've missed what marriage is actually all about. You see, God in this marriage covenant, God is seeking not our happiness, but his purpose. Let me say that again, because you're not really going to see this at a sign at Hobby Lobby. It's not going to be there, right? You're not going to see this anywhere when you're getting ready for a wedding, right? Marriage is not about your happiness. It's about God's purpose, Now, can you be happy in marriage? Absolutely. Absolutely. Some of my happiest moments in my life have been married to Lauren. But if you walk into a marriage seeking your happiness, you will fail. You'll be left disappointed. Gary Chapman, in his book Sacred Marriage, puts it simply, you won't find happiness at the end of a road named selfishness. And so really, that's the call when we're talking about marriage, is to seek holiness, is to seek God's purpose, not our happiness. Seek to make God known in your marriage, and you will find true purpose. See, what we see about God in these sections of Malachi is that he's a jealous God, and not how we think jealous, right? He's not jealous of somebody who has something that I want, not jealous I'm talking about. See, God is possessive of what is rightly his. Here in this chapter, we see that he is possessive of the worship and the service that belong to him. It's a sin from the great commandments to worship or serve anything other than God. And he is jealous of what rightfully belongs to him. You see, he is the first love that they should have had. Anything other than that really missed the mark of what his people had been called to do. Let's answer question number two. What is true about the people here in Malachi 2? If you were with us last week, we actually started in this chapter. But what I want you to notice is that last week, the beginning of chapter two, actually spoke to the leaders of the faith. This part of chapter two is speaking to everybody. This is for the common people. This is giving them direct words from God. Just like in the previous passages of Malachi, there's really no sugar-coating anything. This is a very blunt and straight-to-the-point kind of message. So then what are the people doing at this time? To put it simply, the people, the Israelite people, had been unfaithful in their horizontal relationships and in their vertical relationships. See, the people of Israel, they had lost sight of their first love. In verse 11, Malachi states, For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and he has married the daughter of a foreign god. So let's be super clear here. God is against the union of a God-seeking spouse becoming intimately partnered with somebody who is not. And this isn't just for Old Testament times. Paul speaks at length about this in 2 Corinthians 6, about believers who are chasing after Christ, not being intimately tied to those who aren't. 2 Corinthians 6, I'm going to kind of summarize it for you here. It says, don't become partners with those who reject God. How can you make a partnership out of right and wrong? It's not partnership, that's war. Is light best friends with dark? Does Christ go strolling with the devil? Do trust and mistrust hold hands? So let me take a pause here just a second. We're going to take a break from the marriage conversation. and actually want to talk to students, young adults, singles, people who are walking into a dating season. All right, got your attention? Even if you're you're not dating, you can still listen. It's still good, okay? As your pastor, can I point you to these scriptures? Can I point you to 2 Corinthians 6? Can I point you here to Malachi? Because we talk a lot, students know this, we talk a lot about going and sharing your faith with a very dark and broken world. And I 100% mean that. But when it comes to your dating relationships, that's not your evangelistic endeavor. That's not what it's about. Yes, share your faith, invite people into your life who desperately need Jesus. Be the light to a dark world, but your most intimate relationships, the people in your closest circle, Chase Jesus. See, we're not called to go and date people in order to save them. Our most intimate and personal relationship should be with those people that push us towards Christ, not away from him. And believe me, if you go down that road, no matter how strong you think your faith walk is, it's a dangerous, dangerous path. So as you walk into a dating season, you should be praying now for a spouse that seeks God and chases after him way before they even think about chasing after you. And how do you go when you live that out right now beyond praying? Is you be the one who is chasing after God way before you go and chase after anybody else. Free dating advice. There you go. Let's hop back into Malachi. See, this wasn't the end of the problems for the Israelites. Because on top of this unfaithful living in their horizontal relationships between husbands and wife, we see that it wasn't because of love or devotion. They were literally chasing after these relationships to gain status. You see, they were trying to marry these women from a foreign land so that they could climb the social status ladder. They wanted to make a little more money. They wanted to have a seat at the political table. You see, they were married to the wife of their youth, their first wife, the women who believed in the same God that they did. And they were divorcing them without a cause because they wanted the newest, hottest version of whatever happiness culture could give them. When you get down to it, it's the love of self that actually caused these Israelite men to lust after the women and all of the nearsighted pleasures that the culture could give them. We pick this back up in verse 13 and we read the second thing you do You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping, and groaning because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. You see, they wanted their cake and they wanted to eat it too. They wanted all the pleasures that the world could promise them, and they wanted to also have the continued blessing of God. It's a good thing we in America in 2023 have figured out this problem. We don't still struggle with the same thing, right? Wrong. We still do absolutely struggle with trying to have all God and his blessings and all the things that the world can give us. And maybe we don't explicitly say it quite like the Israelite men did. But tell me if this sounds familiar. So many of us want Jesus from 1030 to noon on Sunday. Our schedule, our time frame. And if we have a really good week, maybe we'll hit that worship playlist on Spotify on our drive into work. Maybe we'll do uh, two or three days of our five-minute Devo in the morning. But the rest of our time in our week is actually spent satisfying what we want, our pleasures, our social climb. Our schedules get so jammed-packed with the things that make us happy that there's just a little bit of room left for Jesus. But we know, right, when life hits us and we get popped in the mouth by life, we run back to the church, we run back to Jesus What's the deal, God? Where are my blessings? Like, like, don't miss this, right? We want Jesus in the moment that we need him, but we go and we divorce him from the rest of our week. Give me Jesus right here, right now, but leave him here. I'll be back next week. See, what I want you to see is that divorce is so much deeper than just a husband and a wife splitting up. We can easily divorce our first love. We divorce Christ so that we can chase after the things that give us momentary happiness. You see, thousands of years later, we're still falling into the same trap. Like, God, I know I promised to live for you, and I really haven't been, but I mean, you still got me, right? Right here in Scripture, the Israelites would show up to worship and they'd cry out loud on the altar, but not because of their brokenness. Not because they recognized they needed God. No, they were crying and weeping because God was no longer pouring out blessings on them. That's two really big things I want you to see here about the people in chapter two. They were abandoning their first love, God the Father, to seek popularity, more money, quick happiness. And then they would return crying out to God for the lack of blessings that He gives. It's a double piece. They were unfaithful in their horizontal relationships and unfaithful in their vertical relationship with God, the one that mattered the most. Last question, what does Malachi chapter 2 have to say that's true about us? Well, unfortunately, we see the same problem that the Israelites had then. We still see those problems today. How do we, the people of God, respond to this covenant? Unfaithful. Unfaithful counterfeit, self-pleasing, that we still profane the covenant of God. And see, at the root of this issue is that when we get into a covenant relationship with God, He calls on every single area of our life. And if we're honest, sometimes we don't really like that. Take a second. Think about this this morning. How many of us have personal relationships in our life right now? that don't reflect the love and grace that you've been shown by the Father. I know in preparing this message this past week, I had to do a lot of soul searching myself. I had to look at my horizontal relationships and say, hey, where have I wronged somebody? Do those that I have contact with know that I follow Jesus, not just because of what I say or what I post online, but by my actions? It took me back actually to my senior year of high school. My senior year of high school, I had been, uh, I was in youth group like my whole life. I think I was probably like some of our kids who at fifth grade, I'm like knocking the door down to get into youth group, right? That was me. Like I was in youth my whole life. And a matter of fact, I was a leader. I played a little guitar in the worship band. Like I did the whole thing. And so my senior year of high school is coming and I remember sitting in my senior English class and I don't remember what the conversation was. I don't remember what exactly was said, but I said something that was a little less than Christ like. And I just remember, I'll never forget, the girl who sat in front of me turned around and she said, Don't you go to church? I wonder how many of us this morning have neighbors, have friends, have co workers, have people that we hang out with that see how we talk and see what we do and see what we post online and they say, Wait, don't you follow Jesus? You see, every ounce of us should be submitting to the lordship of God in our life. There is absolutely nothing that is off limits. There's no friendships, there's no relationships that we can call our own outside of this covenant. Dutch reformer Abraham Kuyper puts it this way, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence in which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, that is mine. You see, our horizontal relationship should speak volumes about the vertical one that we have with Christ. And you see, Malachi, he has some brutally honest warnings for the people of Israel in his book. But one thing I was encouraged by this week is that the Bible doesn't end here. This book is heavy. There's a lot of disappointments. There is a lot of people missing the mark of what God has set out for them. There's a lot of people burning relationships down to the ground, disappointing God. But the story doesn't actually end here. As a matter of fact, in my Bible, I love it because when I look at Malachi chapter 2, I turn the page, just one more page. I turn the page one more and I'm reminded that there was something new that was coming. You see, Jesus was coming. And he is the reason that we have hope today. Because, yes, we can be disappointed in our horizontal relationships. We can be burned by people in church and out of church, but there is hope because Jesus was perfect. He's the answer to all of our disappointments. He is the picture of a perfect husband. He's the friend who doesn't leave when times get hard. He's a father who just loves you deeply. You see, Jesus is actually the answer to all of our relationship problems. Because in Jesus, we have a Savior who took on all of our failures, all of our sins, all of our mistakes, and he put them on him. And then he stood in our place. Why would he do such a thing? Because disappointment doesn't get the last word. Unfaithfulness doesn't get the last word. And so as I invite the band back up, I actually want to wrap up with just a couple of words of hope. You see, we have this new story when you turn the page. We have the Savior, Jesus, and he came for you, and he came for me. And so even if you walked in here and you're carrying the baggage of what we talked about this morning with your relationships, I want to remind you what Romans 8 tells us. There is, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't just deal with the problem as something that was remote and unimportant. He showed up. He came. He came. And he changed the course of human history. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on human condition. He stepped into our mess of a struggling humanity, and he set it right. And through his perfect life and his death and his glorious resurrection, he defeated sin forever and ever. So I really don't know what you came in here with today. But what I can tell you is that there is hope. Maybe you look at your life and you see your horizontal relationships and you've worn this badge of being a Christian, but you've treated people like something less. Maybe for you, it's you need to go and you need to apologize to somebody, you need to ask for forgiveness. I'm just gonna say, would you be bold and would you reach out to them? Not through a text. Maybe give them a phone call, take them out to lunch, grab some coffee, and say, I'm sorry. Perhaps others of you today, you walked in here, and you're much like those Israelites. You'll show up, but just to complain to God, hey, I didn't get what I wanted, instead of truly recognizing all the faults in your own life. Can I tell you, there's hope for you today, too. You don't have to keep living in this cycle of self-pleasing. And then when life hits you square in the face, you come back running to God. You see, God even then was in the business of restoration and that hasn't changed. You gotta cry out to him. For others of you in the room who are married, maybe this is the first time that you've heard that marriage isn't about your happiness, but for God's purpose. And maybe you realize that you're really not on the path that your marriage is supposed to be on. You need help. You're in the right place. There's hope for you too. We have pastors and life group leaders who would love to just run with you in your marriage journey. But you got to be bold. And lastly, there are others in this room this morning that maybe you just need to come back to your first love. Maybe you've done a really good job of playing the church card on Sunday and... Maybe sometime during the week, I hit a little bit more Jesus. But honestly, the rest of my life looks very divorced from the love of Christ. We're going to have time this morning for you to respond and come back to the first love. So as the band sings, I'm just going to invite you to respond however you need to. Would y'all pray with me? God, our invitation this morning is simple. God, would we take the words that we find in Malachi and would we live them out right here and right now? God, would you bring us back to the first love? God, would you bring us back to you and so that all the things that we've been chasing, all the desires that we think can bring us happiness, well, they just fade away. So God, we love you because you are a God of hope. You are a God of restoration and we need you now more than ever. We love you. Jesus, I pray, amen.